Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of My on Mondays. Today we bring you part two of My Frankenstein Monster by Idaho author and screenwriter Samantha Silva. Her debut novel, Mr. Dickens and His Carol, was published by Flatiron Books in 2017, followed by Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft in May of 2021. Her essays appear on LitHub, and her short story, Leo in Venice, was the September 2019 issue of One Story. She's currently working with Seattle Repertory Theater to adapt Mr. Dickens and his Carol for the stage, and was a 2020 Idaho Commission on the Arts Literary Fellow. As described by Silva, part two of My Frankenstein Monster began as an entry point for her novel Love and Fury, a place to begin to imagine how Mary Shelley longed for her absent mother. My Frankenstein Monster, Part 2 Tonight, I gave birth to a monster. His skin is coated like wax the color of jaundice, so taut and thin it bears the dark atlas of arteries beneath. The head is altogether lopsided, though in proportion to its limbs. The lustrous black hair doesn't hide his dull, watery eyes sunk deep in their sockets, as if from a melancholy no just-born being can contain. I confess he's not what I expected, nor what our gentle confederacy of perfections rarely admits to a parent who hasn't seen one before. A child at birth can be a shocking thing. What springs from us is not who we thought we were, not what we see when the mirror gazes back at us. I recoil at the sight of him, who awakens a terror and wonder inside me so deep that it thrusts me to my own beginnings, flickers at the back of my eyes, out to the tips of my fingers, and down to the between of my thighs, where life and death spring forth in equal measure. I tremble at what I've begun, but feel my own life force now inextricably tied to his, a thousand times knotted together, a cord that cannot be cut. He is my mind and heart on paper, bread of spilt wax, black ink, and despair. I don't know whether his frightening visage should survive the night, and yet I feel some tenderness for this fledgling who comes by the light of my candle in deep night, when all the house sleeps under a thundering sky shorn of stars. Lightning bursts inside pewter clouds that barrel and press over Lake Geneva, 
gathering godlike force. We have taken refuge at Villa Diodati, in full retreat from a world whose weather is awry. It's been a year since faraway Mount Tambor exploded into the visible heavens, remaking the elements across the globe. There are places where it's known as 1800 and froze to death. But here, where the villagers have an inborn sense of omens, they call it the year without summer. Where it goes from hot to frigid and wet to arctic in the span of three days. There ought to be shimmering leaves and dappled light on the lake. We should be walking in alpine forests, bonnet ribbons dangling from our fingers, gathering nosegays of velvet edelweiss and columbine. Instead, the pretty palette of midsummer turns lurid and macabre. There are hillsides so late ravaged by frost, they appear in great swaths to be scorched with an iron, and even the martin, hummingbird, and scarlet sparrow will let you take them by the hand with no attempt to fly away, else they be abandoned to perish in the cold. In a dream, with my eyes wide open, I am that little bird, so small against a bleak expanse, waiting for her to come for me. I pull my Kashmiri shawl close and glance behind where Shelley sleeps, sweet man, one arm off the edge. Where I lie like a corpse, contained and narrow, he sprawls naked and takes the bed. It's been two years since I swore my love to him on my mother's grave in old St. Pancras churchyard, things said aloud that had not yet passed my then sixteen-year-old lips. I can see him still, draped across the blanket of moss on her grave, hair wind-tossed as always, even in the calmest weather, shirt open, pale chest, and muddy boots trying not to crush the daffodils at the loamy footing. He'd lean on an elbow and read to me from her books, more recitation than lecture, his poet's cadence lifting the words and breathing them anew into the world. It was as much his devotion to her that moved me, as if we could conjure her ghost through the rapture we shared on that sacred spot where, as a small child, I traced the letters of her name with my finger long before I knew what sound those letters made. I learned to read that I might read her name on that tombstone, Wollstonecraft. My father made sure of it, urged me on, pouring his own grief into me, everything a lesson. R. A. F. I still believe, despite what has passed between us, that he considered it parental love to look for her in me, and where he didn't find her, seek to mold me, make me into her, that I might fill that empty space, rekindle her brief candlelight in his life. He never caressed me, that I recall, even less my older sister Fanny. If he deigned now and then to stroke my hair or draw me to his knee, I felt a mingled alarm and delight impossible to describe. Yet somehow I knew he loved me, at least the idea of me, almost to idolatry. I took whatever crumbs he offered, repaying them with enthusiastic fondness, despite his reserve and my awe. Shelley is in all ways his opposite. If he could wrap his arms twice around and swallow me whole, he would. All my life to now, it's what I'd sought. 
union, symbiosis, return. I was desperate to know her, know everything about her, but I could never find my mother in the stories people told in our chilly drawing room, not even in dear Coleridge's bright memory of her, never in my stepmother's haughty sneer, nor in the neatly bundled letters my father doled out to me year by year, least of all in his memoir ever, a hagiography that did more harm to her memory than good. I sought solace in my own reserve, like his, carefully crafted to protect me, but I didn't know from what. Then, when Shelley came around and seemed to drink me in, my remoteness did not deter him. He found me pale and distant as the moon, with a thoughtful pearl face. He caught me in the corridor to say so. I could almost feel his fingers in his gaze, touching each lash of my gray-green eyes, combing through my gauzy hair. He called it the color of autumn blaze. He was half in love before we met, he confessed, in a deep regard of my auspicious parentage, the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. I didn't mind, neither that he was married, unhappily, nor that he believed me the exceptional progeny of two great minds. For when I saw that he loved my mother too, the way he looked upon our only portrait of her with anguished eyes and spoke in dulcet tones, I knew that he found me clothed in her radiance. I soon determined that if I could not have her, I would him, impossible Shelley, married Shelley, Shelley who loves to sail but cannot swim and pines for life on some faraway cerulean sea. After two more dinners, my father oblivious to my titillation, for everyone thinks the poet has come for them alone, I took Shelley to my hallowed place in St. Pancras, looked in his wild, infinite eyes, pressed my hands on his chest, and declared myself. We lay on the grassy earth at the base of her grave, and at last touched with the full ardor of love, my undergarments notwithstanding, and I perceived the sublime in human form. I could not reanimate her as much as I dreamed and spoke of it, even of digging her up and opening her coffin to see for myself that she was once real and alive and now dead, only teeth and bones. But Shelley understood and now did comb his fingers through my falling hair. And from that moment I believed in him, in my heart, my groin, my nether brain, my everything. We were true believers in my mother's ideals. No institution as banal as marriage could contain us, nor society's rules control the heart. Love requires us to be free, he said to me, and to promise forever to love the same woman is no less absurd than to promise to believe the same creed. We must be ever-changing, ever-opening to the great mystery of our existence. For him, staying with Harriet after the decay of their affection, though she was pregnant with their second child, was an intolerable tyranny, an infringement of his natural rights. He had taken his arrows for it, surrendered his claim to a fortune, been threatened with debtor's prison, cast out of polite society— but I, too, would risk everything to prove that I am my mother's daughter. 
I felt sure my father would be proud of it, even if it meant my release from the oppression of Skinner Street, our Godwin home, for so long an alien world with a cold stepmother jealous of my desire to live without constraint. His own brief marriage to my mother was a fight for just that. Still, I knew that I had pledged myself to Shelley for all time, Mine, a numinous vow unto death, with a starry night as a church, the grassy earth our altar, and a gentle muttering wind for a priest. Shelley could do what he would, and though I may not always be his, I could never belong to anyone else, no matter what might come. We have lost one child already. Our precious Wilmouse sleeps in the next room. Still, I cannot deny the lingering echo of our dead baby girl, a cavern of sadness inside me. Shelley thinks we are on holiday, but I know we are gathering ourselves for another try, another jaunt through mountain passes, stone-cropped picnics, love that goes on for two days without breakfast. And yet, hard as I try, I cannot locate that part of my being. Shelley catches me watching our small son with tears glossing my eyes. The grieving clutches at me unannounced, a bottomless sorrow for a little girl lost. He gathers me up in his arms from behind, presses his chest to my arrowed shoulders, and whispers poetry in my ear. But I don't want to be subsumed or seduced, enveloped nor returned to the safety of a dark womb. I want to be born. Instead, I give birth to a monster who comes as the fruit of a dare on a night when we have no hope of trudging the narrow, muddy path back to our own Villa Chapui, down the hill, and instead gather around the fire to read our usual book of German ghost stories. My stepsister Claire took the chair closest to Byron, which quickens her pulse more than any horror could, I felt sure her breast would heave. But my own fingernails gripped at my skirts when Byron finished the tale and closed the book with a willful thump. And then threw it off like it was nothing. Each of us shall write a ghost story, he declared, before we had rubbed the fright from our eyes. Here we are, stuck in our fair harborage. The world outside is upside down. We might be stranded for days, if not weeks. Let us see who will rise to it. But when he said it, he looked straight at Shelley, his acolyte, whom he regards with something between skepticism and wonder. Let us see what you are made of, Shelley, whose eyes sparked the challenge but gave nothing away. Claire, who longs for Byron most of all, and Shelley next, seemed to wonder how she too might turn it to her advantage, but has no desire to write. She is all action or nothing, and believes in Mary Wollstonecraft with a fervor that on some days exhausts even me. She fled Skinner Street two years ago to be part of our coterie, without even a backward glance, while I lingered in the foyer, having second thoughts about leaving what was once my mother's home, and the only one I'd known. But where Claire lifts her skirts alone, I now lift my pen. And even still shiver at what I am about to write, at what I am about. Who am I who would write monsters? Who to take up the dare and attempt anything at all? 
Surely Byron thinks I will not even try, and yet I write not for his approval. I know already that he will find much to discredit in the words of an eighteen-year-old girl who has written nothing save letters home and away. Nor do I write for Shelley, who urges me to show the world who I am, let them see that I am worthy of my semi-divine parentage, and so I do the opposite, turn away from paper and pen. Is it for my father, who has not spoken or written to me these two years, despite my imploring him to change his mind? I am not leaving you, father. I am loving him. And only silence back, more punishing than the most violent rain. All the while he writes unrelentingly to Shelley, begging for money to support his writing, without even a question as to my well-being, the death of our daughter, the birth of our son. I feel myself an orphan, having been abandoned already. Not again, father, I want to say. Not again. But it was my own coming into the world, my own life that ended hers. A stubborn afterbirth, a doctor who didn't wash his hands, a sudden turn, then slow dying by purple fever. She wasn't expected to die. I wasn't expected to live. Ten days of agony. My father wringing his hands and pacing on the long rug outside her door. How could an infant be blamed for that? It's quite easy. In fact, I do it all the time. Count the years of her absence. The years I haven't known the touch of her narrow fingers, the smell of her soft brown hair. Counting the 18 years since I killed her. Since I was small, people meant to delight me by saying that I was born at the end of a month when a comet burned across London's skies, an auspicious detail of my arrival into the world, I suppose. But my birth is her death. What good fortune lies in that? I've since learned that by then the comet was a small, faint cloud of light, barely visible to the naked eye, a vague nebulosity with no discernible nucleus. And it has always nagged at my heart. Is that my own ill-defined border, my own diffuse light? Was it she who blazed bright across the sky while I am only some pale shadow of her brilliance? What right have I to call myself Wollstonecraft? I will tell them, if they ask, that my monster came to me in a waking dream. But I won't say the rest of it, that the birth of my story and the story of my birth feel conjoined tonight and my thought about them the same. I don't know what will happen next, but I know my story is not all tragedy, yet binds to each of my fears. Fear in the muscles, the glands, the blood. My monster quickens the beatings of my young heart. I do not know him as I do not know myself, but we will grasp for the same self-truth, share the same birth-breath, my monster and I. He is the darkest part of me, and I the only light he knows. But what light? My pen is dark, ink dark, countenance dark, sky outside warning me, I am not the writer here. You see, I came for Shelley too. But he sleeps, and I am awake. My monster is born, and I cannot turn away. 
I don't know whether he will live or die, be adored or reviled, whether the world or even Byron and Shelley and Clare too will come to believe in him. But in giving birth to him, I know that I've made him indelibly who he is and who he will be if he does survive. He carries me inside of him, his goodness mine, his strangeness mine, his power, the power I bequeath him. But what power? From what are we made and by whom? Who are we who have given birth? What who are born? For tonight of all nights, I long for that wondrous womb that would give me to the light. I wonder where is the breast to succor me? Where the tender glance of bright eyes, the lilt of that voice calling my name and urging me on? What was that box of bones beneath my feet in St. Pancras? I do not know whether I love my monster as I do not know whether I love myself because I do not know whether my mother loved me. I have her name in mine, if I could but live up to it, a name that rips across my heart like a knife, a shield, an epitaph, a kiss. I have looked for her everywhere, in the mirror glass, the tangled veins of my own hands, the portrait above my father's desk, in the books and letters she wrote, the streets she walked, in the shadows where I walk. I listen for her in my laughter. I wait for her in my pain. If she is lost to me, I am sworn to find her. If I am lost, I am sworn the same. And so alone with the murmuring thunder outside, wrapped in my old Kashmiri shawl, in her Kashmiri shawl, I feel as never before that her ghost is here with me. And so I close my eyes and wait for her to tell her tale, because here we are now, and I must finally know where does my mother end and I begin? Where does my mother begin? Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley We're so glad you joined us today. Please join us next week for a new piece by actor and writer Jodine Revere.